at Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode 10, an interview with Stephen's brother. And it isn't just Stephen's brother, it's also my dad. I'm excited for you to hear from his perspective and to be able to give him the opportunity to speak in Stephen's defense, an opportunity that was stripped from him 20 years ago. Dad has never been on a podcast and I'm still an amateur myself, so this could be a bit messy of a recording, but we will try our best. We hope you like not only the conversation in general, but the new bits of information I have not shared in previous episodes. Okay, Dad, so tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, uh, my name is George Manolis. I'm one of Stephen's older brothers, and I've been involved in uh, law enforcement probably for the last 30 plus years. I've worked with uh, a lot of different agencies, New York State Police, Pennsylvania State Police, multiple U.S. assistant attorneys and multiple New York State attorney, uh, assistant district attorneys. I worked with the Secret Service, uh, multiple judges. I worked also undercover for the State Narcotics and Liquor Law Enforcement Bureau. I've been a court officer. I've worked in jails, prisons, and uh, also uh, a lot of time in private security as well. I've been involved in a lot of different types of cases, from murder for hire, drug and distribution cases, to attempted murder cases and assault cases. I've had uh, extensive internal affairs training, was a compliance officer. I've written several policies and procedures. One of my policies was the uh, DNA sampling for criminal identification. It's a model policy for New York State. I've gotten numerous awards and medals through the years. So definitely a hefty background in law enforcement. Right, right. A lot of different areas. I've covered a lot of different areas in law enforcement, just primarily in internal affairs and investigations. So does that knowledge make you more frustrated when we talk about Stephen's case? Yes, yes, it does. Knowing what I know that not not all police officers are going to tell the truth all the time. There's always going to be situations. There's always a few bad apples. Did you ever think that we would be at a place in life where I wrote a book about Stephen and now we're sitting at the library together recording a podcast? (laughs) No, No. although I'm glad that it's uh, some of this is finally coming to uh, to light, the light of day. Also, to give some of the listeners some context, as I was working on Stephen's story, bugged my dad pretty much daily about the case. So I spent about eight months reading through the transcripts, and we would stay up sometimes till 1 a.m. just hashing out these details back and forth. Every time I would read something, I'd be like, did you know this? And then we'd talk about it for like four hours. So a lot of time on my part to write the book, but also a lot of time on my dad's end listening to me and kind of having to go back in time and relive some of the details and things that were happening. So it's been an interesting journey for both of us, I'm sure. So we basically made a list of questions and I sort of drafted them chronologically in terms of the episodes that I've already gone over. So we've got a little bit about my dad's background now, but I wanted to get into how that relates to Stephen going back all the way to episode one with who Stephen is and kind of following those episodes to where we are now. And then also giving you guys a little bit of information that we haven't talked about in prior episodes. So the first question that I wanted my dad to answer was what it was like to see Stephen's personality and way of life changed? Like, what did you think or what was going on in your mind? Did you even recognize it? Was it a sudden change? It seems sudden to me, but it, was it as sudden as I imagine? Or was it just kind of this slow progression over time? Or was it a mixture? Well, overall, I would say it was a slow progression over time. You know, Stephen and I shared the same bedroom at our house until probably I was about 14 or 15. You know, I knew a lot about his personality and what was going on. I saw changes that were occurring in his life. I really couldn't put my finger on it, though, for sure. You know, not being a medical doctor. Did you ever talk about it as a family or not really, like with your parents? Or it was just sort of accepted? You mean his seclusion? Yeah, just like how he dropped out of school and then just stayed at home. Because obviously that's going to be a transition even for grandma and papu no we would talk about it yeah we would talk about it and uh try to figure out what was going on but you know we always you know loved them and supported them yeah just kind of like this is how he lives his life right and we'll just kind of go with it roll with it right because definitely by the time he's being arrested and put on trial he's way more secluded and isolated than when he first dropped out of college in the early 80s right so did you ever ask steven if he had anything to do with the crime. 
Yeah, I did. I was down the, to our house on uh, Long Island probably the next weekend. And I asked him, I said, do you have anything to do with this? And he looked at me and he said, are you crazy? Of course not. And this is the weekend after Kristen was killed. Right. Okay. So as someone who obviously knew Stephen through all the transitions of his life, what did you think of the name Kyle Sterling? Did it ever confuse you? Did you just ignore it? And then also, did you agree with Uncle John's, I guess, assessment or idea of where the name came from, from those two race car drivers? Well, initially I was, you know, kind of thought it was a little funny <laughs> and, uh, you know, wondering why he was doing that. But I definitely do think that it came from Sterling Martin, I believe it was. So Kyle Petty and Sterling Martin. Okay, yeah, right, right. Yeah, because he used to love uh, race cars. And uh, as a matter of fact, when he was little, he had a he got a present from my parents. It was a race car set. And those two drivers were on the box. Oh, okay. So that's probably where he got it from. And he liked to, uh, you know, get on the phone and apply for your like sweepstakes and things like that. Probably just didn't want to use his own name. Yeah, I told him a little bit about that, how we would meet in that pink room because it had the landline where, and we'd go in there and we'd call sweepstakes right. numbers and kind of just mess around. And I told him a little bit in a previous episode as well about how like he didn't make anyone use that name. He wasn't mad if you didn't call him Kyle. Like we always called him Uncle Steven and you guys called him Steven or Steve. Yeah. Really, the only time, the first time I saw the name was in just mail that sometimes came to the house. And usually it had something to do with a sweepstakes or something like that. Now, something I haven't told the listeners is about a trip that Sergeant Doyle and another detective made to our childhood home while my parents were gone. So we live in upstate New York, which is how long? How far would you say from Long Island? About six hours. Okay, so six hours. And my parents were on a cruise. And so my sister was 18 at the time. And she was watching my brother and myself, as well as my mom's parents who lived just two houses down. So my sister was home alone because my brother and I were at school and these detectives showed up and she thought her first reaction was that they were there to tell her that our parents had died on their cruise. So when she described it to me, she was feeling panicked because she thought that's what the, the visit was about. But she quickly learned that they were there to talk to her about Stephen and also to my brother and myself. But she told them they weren't going to be able to speak to us because we were at school. So she stood out on the porch with these two detectives and answered their questions. So after the detectives left, my sister called my grandparents in Long Island and told them that these detectives had just been there to question her about Stephen. And so my grandma wrote down everything that my sister said and put it in a letter form and then gave that to Stephen's lawyer. So we have the questions and answers as they were reported to my grandma by my sister. So what did these detectives want to know? So at first they asked my sister if Stephen was mentally okay, to which she said yes. And then they asked her if she thought that he was weird. And she said no. They wanted to know if she had ever seen Stephen be social. And she told him not really except with us, meaning the kids and like his brothers. They asked, was he affectionate? Did he hug people? She said, not really. So then they asked, how long has he been called Kyle? And she said, as long as I can remember. And then they asked, well, what do you call him? And she said, we call him Uncle Stephen. And then they asked, did he ever talk about Kristen? And she responded, no, not to me. So they said, I understand your position, but we have a dead girl here. And she responded that Stephen doesn't touch anybody and he doesn't like to be touched. What did you think when you first learned about this interaction that the detectives had come to our house and questioned your Jan without you being there? Well, I was a little shocked that they would come all that way from Long Island up there to just talk to the kids while I, my wife and I were gone. Because I, I know mom was probably pretty bugged about it, like upset that she wasn't there. There wasn't like any parents around because Georgiana was 18. But if Thomas and I had been there, we would have been minors. Right. I came to find out later on that they said they were just passing through the area, which doesn't oh. make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, they were up there to try and talk to you you guys to see if they could just draw, you know, find out anything incriminating against Stephen. Yeah, I think I looked it up and it's actually not, if I'm saying this correctly, it's not against the law for police to speak to minors without their parents present, if I remember correctly. Because I know that mom had said she was upset, she brought it up, but there wasn't really anything to be done. It's just, it's okay for them to speak to minors without their parents. But an interesting thing here is that, like we said before, Long Island is about six hours from where we lived in upstate New York. So the detectives spent 12 hours in getting to and from our home just to talk to my sister for, you know, maybe a few moments. 
they spent more time driving to and from our house than they spent probably in like the whole of the investigation. They talked to Anton Shalinsky, the man who confessed for 15 minutes. And they talked to James Marr, the man who threatened to rape and kill Kristen for 90 minutes. So that just shows like how clearly they wanted it to be Stephen. They put in all that travel time to talk to Georgianne for a few moments, but they didn't bother to do anything with the other guys. If they had spent even half that time searching Anton's home or James's home, what they could have uncovered. Right. It was just another fishing expedition. She didn't give them anything that they could use. And, you know, she told them the truth. I had mentioned in a previous episode how my grandparents in their letter said that they had called their son, George, that's my dad, when they first realized that Stephen was missing. They waited until morning after they kind of searched the neighborhood and then they called my dad. So what were you thinking or what was your first thought when they called you just to say that he was missing? Well, initially when they called, I was really busy at work with several other things going on. So I couldn't give them 100% of my attention. But I was on the phone long enough to tell them that, uh, well, if he's not in the house, uh, you might want to call the police to see if maybe he was injured or if he was arrested for something. Obviously, some time passes and they call you and tell you that he has been arrested. And they I'm assuming they told you what for. I'm not sure I remember the, the details of that. I mean, it was probably a bit shocking for everybody and just trying to piece together what was going on. They probably hadn't even talked to Stephen at this point. They're calling you. Right. But what did you think, I guess, then when you first found out what he was arrested? Well, again, I was shocked. I couldn't uh, believe it. I mean, we'd lived next to these people for, you know, many years without any incidents. I had no reason to believe that he had anything to do with it. I guess that goes to another question that I had written down. Did you think or know or have any inclination that between 1996 and 2001, that Stephen was the prime suspect all along? No, never. Never had any indication of it. Was never contacted by the police never saw the police, and neither did anyone in my family. In the last episode, I explained what happened as far as the snippets I took out of my dad's report to the grievance committee in terms of his threat from Mr. Collins, and then also how Collins took that note from the defense table, took it out of the courtroom. So I gave you some snippets from that, but obviously that's a huge upset for my dad, something he's had to live with this whole time, the fact that he didn't get to testify and that the reason he didn't get to testify was because he was threatened. And not just that, but that the prosecutor behaved that way. And when he sent it to the grievance committee, it was just dismissed without investigation. Several things that are upsetting in this situation. So I want to hear from you and your perspective, like what was happening in your mind? First initial reaction when Collins says to you, as long as you don't testify, like, did you immediately think, oh, that guy just threatened me? Did you have to process it for a minute? What was going on there? Well, this is something that's, uh, this is not something you forget. Let's put it that way. This is something you think only happens in the movies. This was reality, and I was I was really taken aback by it when it happened. Uh, it's ingrained in my memory, like, unbelievably well. I remember it word for word. Uh, I remember that Collins came out of the courtroom, and I was, you know, standing in the hallway. And as he approached me, he had his head cocked to the side a little bit almost as if he uh, wanted to ask me a question. And my brother was just a few feet away. And he I looked at me and he said, are you going to testify in this case? I said, you know, not to my knowledge, I wasn't planning on it or something to that effect, but I wasn't sure. He then said that he asked me if my employer was aware of the incident involving probation. You know, this was a sealed record from 20 years prior when my brother and myself were both detained by the police after uh, we went down to visit my brother at the police station. I don't know if you've already discussed this. That we my... haven't. Let's clarify. Dad wasn't actually arrested. Oh, yeah. Let's back <laughs> up for a second. So... Year, years before, my, my uh, brother Stephen was on probation. Probation. And I did talk about the probation and how he was given the summons to appear in court because he didn't go to. Right. He went to the first few probation appointments. He then told my parents that he wasn't going to go back again because the place was just filthy and he didn't want to be in there anymore. And so he didn't go. And the probation officers came to the house several times. Stephen would, you know, not answer the door, not come to the door. One day they decided to come, and this time they brought an army of officers with them, both police officers and probation officers. They surrounded the house. They knocked on the door. My mother answered the door. They saw Stephen cross the hallway. They 
started struggling with Stephen. My brother John was on the stairway taking pictures of uh, everything that was going on. And I'm trying to console my mother because they're running through the house, banging into things. And my mother had statues and all over the place. And I'm trying to hold her, <laughs> hold her and protect the house. And they finally cornered Stephen in a closet. They brought him out. They said, okay, folks, it's all over. Nothing was done at the time. They said, you can come down and see Stephen in a few hours. And we said, all right, we'll come down in a few hours to check on him. A few hours later, we went down to the police station. John was still taking pictures outside the uh, police station. We walked into a door. A couple of police officers came up behind us, told us we were under arrest. One officer said, get that camera. I want those pictures developed right away. So they brought us into a room. They sat us at a table in the same room. Two police officers and my brother and myself sat in this room. So we were never photographed or fingerprinted or anything like that. They just gave us basically an appearance ticket. Well, within a few days, the case was dismissed in the interest of justice. The judge said, come back in uh, three to six months. If you're not in any trouble, we'll, you know, we'll expunge this and seal the record, which is what happened. Basically, what they really wanted was the, uh, they really wanted that camera and the pictures. Believe it or not, I was actually interviewed by the New York City Police Department a short time later. I put it down on my application that I'd been, you know, taken and uh, given an appearance ticket, and they wanted to know the details. Details. I explained to them, you know, what had happened, and to them, I told I told them that there was no film in the camera while we were in the house. Uh, of course, they didn't know that. That's why they wanted the uh, camera. And the police officers were all chuckling at each other. They go, well, obviously, they just wanted the pictures. <laughs> but there were so, no pictures. <laughs> there were no pictures. So I, you know. Shortly thereafter, two to three weeks later, you know, I was called by the New York City Police Department. And they offered me a position, but by that time, I'd already decided to move upstate. But this, the record's sealed, and there is a copy that we have of it, and it has a, a sealed stamp across it. Very clearly says sealed in big letters right. on this document. And that document is what Collins had. Correct. And it says sealed very clearly across it. Right. So getting back to the story, uh, and then he said, is your employer aware of the incident involving probation? And I said, you mean with that appearance ticket and the arrest and all that? And he said, yes. And I said, no, knowing that I didn't have to disclose it anyway. And he started to turn and walk away. And I said, and it's going to stay that way, right? And he said, as long as you don't testify. He made this threatening statement in the presence of witnesses, including one of his own associates, who uh, later would deny it. Did he deny the threat or did he just... Oh, he, like cover it up like, oh, I didn't really say it like that. Right, right. He... uh he denied saying that. He said that uh, in his response to the grievance committee later on, he said something to the effect that uh, if that situation had come up with the arrest in the, in the house, that he would have to bring up the fact that uh, I was arrested. Oh, like in testimony. In testimony. Oh, so he's trying to play it like he's protecting you from having this information come out as long as you don't get on the stand. He doesn't have to embarrass <laughs> you. Right. And, and he was, even though uh, in the first trial, he alluded to the fact he knew about the arrest and uh, kind of used it as a veiled threat against me. And I always kept him close, but guarded. You know, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to see what he was thinking, but always knew, you know, obviously he was out to get Stephen regardless. Yeah. You know, a prosecutor's job, after all, is, is to, not to win cases but to see that justice is done. And in this case, it was really apparent that uh, that wasn't his goal. Right. Okay, so you've been threatened, he's walking away, and then he gets caught doing something else too. Right. As he's walking away, the uh, our attorney, Mr. Soshnik, uh, came out of the courtroom and he says very clearly, he calls his name three times. He says, John, John, John you have something that belongs to me and I want it back. And that was the note that he had taken off of the defense table that Stephen had written something on to uh, Mr. Sashna. What did he do? Did he give the note back? He gave it back. And as he gave it back, he said, I'll erase it from my memory. But that... These were his exact words. I'll erase it from my memory. Later on, when uh, Sashnik again, moved for another mistrial, he, saw, he told the judge that he said, I only read one line. But he never denied. He never denied taking it. It's just what he said changed. Right. He, 
his explanation was that he, oh, he just picked it up because he was going to throw it in the garbage. Well, he passed, I don't know how many garbage cans before he got to the elevator. And this wasn't even Soshnik, who is Stephen's lawyer. I, I refer to him a lot as Stephen's lawyer, but Mr. Soshnik or Michael Soshnik is Stephen's lawyer. Right. He's the, he didn't even catch Collins doing it. Another lawyer told him. So another individual witnessed it and realized that's you can't do that. Right. Another another attorney that was in the courtroom, I believe his name was uh, Mr. Schick or something like that. When Mr. Soshnik went back into the courtroom to grab some papers that he'd left behind, Mr. Schick said, hey, uh, you know, this Collins guy just took some stuff off the table and left. And that's what caused Soshnik to run out of the hallway and confront Collins. And he did have something. He had a piece of paper and he, he had, took it out of his hand and gave it back to Soshnik. He had the note. It was crumpled. It was in his hand. And he was holding his briefcase in the same hand. So the note was in there yeah, on the briefcase handle and in his hand. So there was no, he wasn't going to throw it away. He was going to take it. Right. It's like he was hiding it. Right. What happened after all this? So like, obviously I know you waited, the trial was almost over at this time. And so trial ends and then you start filing your official complaint. I, but I, I immediately notified Mr. Soshnik about what he had done, what he had said to me in the hallway. So trial is still going on when right. he's threatening you. Right. I immediately notified uh, Soshnik and uh, he brought it to the judge's attention. Again, you know, moved for a mistrial based on this prosecutorial misconduct. Not only the threat, but stealing the uh, note from the table. And again, the judge decided... Not to do anything. But he did call you. The judge called you at work, right? And said you'd be okay. Like nothing would happen if you chose to testify. Right. He called me up at work and he tried to uh, basically console me and say that, uh, don't worry, he's not going to tell your employer about anything. And then you know. I'll. But at this point, everybody already seems so untrusting. Like <laughs> they're already lying and stealing and. Right. How There's no you? way I was going to believe him. He's not the only one involved in the case. There's multiple attorneys, I'm sure, that work for him. Yeah. I mean, anybody anybody could have said anything at any time. And it almost seems like if he cared that much that he's trying to say, like, I would protect your job if he cared that much, then he must have known that what he did was wrong and he should have punished him right. or taken him off the case or done a Right. He knew what he did. He knew yeah. what he did was wrong. Maybe he thought, like, if you decided to testify, you would no longer be able to say, I was threatened, because then you did take the stand. Probably he really wanted you to testify at that point. Oh, they, they tried. Brush they, it. Brush yeah, they, they really did want me to testify. Kind of did, would ruin my whole right. case. I mean, as I look back on it now, I know that now that my employer would never have been able to do anything. But, you know, at the time, I had a young family. I didn't want to take any chances. I didn't want to even have a, you know, the aura of something wrong. Especially because you worked in that field too. It's not like right. you're in the same state, you're in law enforcement, and this powerful person has threatened you. You're probably thinking, yeah, if he can do that, of course he's going to oh, have my I, job. Sure. And what I came to find out later on, even after reporting it to the grievance committee, was that my complaint pretty much fell on deaf ears. I have, I mean, I have specific details of every step I took in that grievance complaint. And my witnesses were never spoken to. I was never spoken to. But at the end of this process, you're, I don't know the term they use, but it's denied or like dismissed, I guess. Right. After a, after a, almost a year of waiting and my complaint being transferred to a different grievance committee without explanation and my constant telephone calls and letters I get something back saying that after the investigation of my complaint was completed, the results were reported to the grievance committee, and they decided to dismiss the complaint. And they went on to say something like, generally a dismissal results when there's like insufficient evidence of professional misconduct upon which to you know, base a sanction against an attorney. 
And professional misconduct is like behavior which violates court rules, laws, or canons of ethics. Again, they go on to say conduct which is complained of, although it may be disturbing or regrettable, often doesn't violate those formal standards of behavior. I was appalled, <laughs> especially knowing that my complaint was never really investigated. And because you, and you're saying not investigated because the only people that they spoke to, the investigating committee, was Collins himself and his associate. As far as I know, if they even went that far. But they didn't actually speak to, like, my dad, my uncle, Mr. Right. Thoshnik, or the reporter who was right, right there, too. Yeah, this, this continues to show just the power that this group has and how they cover for one another. You know, of course, I appealed. I have all the documentation, but even the appeal fell on deaf ears. I appealed the uh, decision, of course. That was denied. And then I called again, and they had someone else look at it, and they still denied it. And then I got a response from uh, Miss Diana maxfield Curse, the chief counsel. And she told me, in sum and substance, that it went in front of a committee of 20 members. And she then said that they investigated it as far as they needed to. Again, was flabbergasted that without even talking to any of my witnesses, that they could come to such a decision. She again told me, well, send in another letter. And I said, okay, I'll send another letter in. They'll relook at it. And again, a few months later, I'm told the same thing, that the decision to dismiss the complaint was proper. And I asked her, how did my complaint get reviewed when none of my people were even spoken to? Again, we investigated as far as we needed to. Continued with this. I wasn't going to give up. I contacted Mrs. Marla Tepper of the U.S. Attorney's Office. She suggested I contact Mr. Richard Fawn. I believe he was with he was with the chief of public integrity. You know, that never went anywhere. And I just continued. My, my last resort was going to be to uh, contact the governor's office myself. But at the same time, that was when Elliot Spitzer was governor. And he was having some legal troubles and wound up leaving office. And so that's kind of where it, uh, where it ended. Well, it's probably also exhausting. Well, as far as the, uh, the complaint itself, that ended there. But I still was trying to uh, reach out to uh, others. I came across an article in Time magazine by a fellow by the name of Reynolds Holding in August 6, 2007. And he was interviewing a uh, professor by the name of Angela Davis from the American University of Washington Law School. She was an individual who said that uh, prosecutors need to be you know, held more accountable. So I laid out my entire case to her looking for some advice. And I uh, penned, oh, probably a 15, 16 page letter to her and never heard anything back. Really, all I was looking for was just, you know, some advice as which way I should go. Then I sent her a second letter and a third. But after three attempts, I, you know, gave up on her too. So a lot of time. A lot of time. <laughs> a lot of time back and forth. And this is just for the the threat, like what's happening with the grievance committee. This is also in addition to Stephen's arrest and two trials and the appeal. So this is consuming a good chunk of time for everybody. Oh, yes. Years. Years. So even though there's been, because I get this question sometimes, there's been a lull in time of anybody doing anything for Stephen. But there was a lot going on at the time, a lot of effort, a lot of phone calls, a lot of writing. That's exhausting. It's time consuming. And everybody has work and families they need to take care of. So it wasn't like it was just, this is the conviction, we're going to take it and not do anything. There were many steps that were taken to try and fix the situation. Well, as you know, there's thousands of pages of documents, not only trial transcripts, but other documents that were prepared. Even a simple letter, when you try to explain it, is 15 pages long. Yeah, there's a lot happening in the case. So you, to break it down... Just It just takes a lot of time. And sometimes it's almost hard to put in words all the ridiculous things that were happening in Stephen's case. And I've done that as best as I could in book form, but that's really where this podcast kind of came up was, I'm going to break it down episode by episode to get more in depth on all these things that were happening. Hopefully I've accomplished that. So backing up, so the grievance report and all that's happening during and after Stephen's second trial, but his first trial in 2003, the year before, ended in a mistrial by hung jury. So seven days, the jurors cannot reach a unanimous verdict. You go to the courtroom and you hear him say, the judge tell the jurors, I'm going to have to declare this a mistrial by hung jury. What's that like? Right. Well, he's 
she's trying to send the jury back in several times. And I remember specifically, he said to, to them at one point, he said, there's no reason to believe that another jury will find anything different. So go back in and deliberate some more. Eventually, they couldn't reach a unanimous decision. Right. So the four person sent out a note that said we're hopelessly deadlocked. And that's when he called them out and basically just on the spot, dismisses them from duty and declares it a mistrial. Right. I wasn't really super shocked because I knew there was no real evidence in the case. I mean, I've been investigating crime and illegal behavior for years, and there was no direct evidence in this case. This entire case was just circumstantial. So you were thinking it's either going to be not guilty or then I guess a mistrial. Right. What were Grandma and Papu saying? Like, or Uncle John or Stephen? What was the environment, I guess, overall, or even Mr. Soshnik? When they say mistrial. I would think that Mr. Soshnik felt kind of like I did. And it wasn't really too surprised. But my parents and my brother, John, they were, you know, they weren't really involved in law enforcement. So it was probably a welcome surprise. Maybe confused. Like, what does that mean? Right. Maybe a little bit. Not knowing that, uh, you know, when there's a mistrial, the state still has the opportunity to try again. And they can try multiple times. Have all... That doesn't really sound fair to me because eventually, right, the eventually odds. the odds are going to switch. What's so, the truest? The truest part of the whole thing was when the judge said, "There is no reason to believe another jury, another intelligent jury, will ever come up with a different result." Which you guys probably took as a good thing, like, okay, if they can't see guilt right away, then nobody else is going to see guilt right away, right? Which we know, obviously. Didn't end up happening, but that's probably what you were thinking when he said that. Correct. Okay, so after the mistrial, anytime a trial ends, the jury members can speak to the different sides. So there's actually a couple of newspapers talking about the jury members who went to the Scarabelli family, like even went to their house and were kind of talking to them. But that wasn't the only side. There's also jury members who thought that Stephen was not guilty, hence why it's a hung jury. They couldn't agree. So some of those jury members spoke to our family and one woman in particular stuck out to my dad and my family. Why? Well, that's true. After a trial is all over, the jurors can speak to anybody they want to speak to. And uh, this one woman came up to us. And again, this is like, you think it only happens in the movies, I think 12 Angry Men. But this woman and three others, so there were four who were not buying the story that Stephen had done this. And she said that what had happened in that deliberation room was incredible. She said she was called every four-letter word in the book, some she'd never even heard of. She was just couldn't believe what they were saying to her, what they were calling her, and the other three uh, jury people. Because they wouldn't switch their verdict to guilty. Because they wouldn't switch, right? It was just unbelievable. I, you know, I I was a court officer for you know a couple of years, but I never. But even the court officers or the bailiffs, they don't go into the deliberation. They just get a note and bring it to the judge, tell them when it's lunchtime or something like that. But they're not in the room. It's just those 12 jurors. And some of the stuff that happened in that room make your skin crawl. But this lady really did want to come forward and tell us what happened in that room. I was shocked. But this is the stuff, like even in the media, that's one-sided. Because after this all happens, there's tons of newspaper articles and reports about the mistrial and how it's going to go to a second trial. And everything was focused on these jury members consoling the Scarabelli family. And there's pictures of them all gathering together. They're obviously not putting in the side of the jurors who are consoling our family about how they thought he was not guilty. You know, there's always two sides, but what we get in the media is not always the full picture. So there was that other side happening as well. Right. It would have been nice to see some of that in the, in the uh, media as well. It would have been, if nothing else, just education for, you know, people in the public. Right. There are a few other concepts and ideas I didn't talk about in the other episodes that I want to bring up now. One of them is actually quite important, but I didn't really know exactly where it fit. And that's this, I'm going to call it the black pants situation. So every person who testified for the prosecution 
said that Stephen was wearing black pants. Whenever it was that they saw him, whether it's one of Kristen's friends saying they're seeing him outside, whether it was Kristen's parents, detectives, it didn't matter who it was. They always said that he was wearing black pants, which is frustrating for our family because we know Stephen never wore black pants. And we know that because he was a recluse and grandma bought him his clothes. So she knows exactly what he's wearing or he'd be given hand-me-downs. So people know what's in his closet. It's not a surprise, but there's one person who didn't say black pants. And I'm going to let you talk like a little bit about that, both the pants and what this police well, officer said. That's true. Like I said earlier that uh, Stephen and I shared a room. So I knew what clothes he had. I didn't even own a pair of black pants until I turned 18 years old and got my first suit. So Stephen definitely never had a pair of black pants. But at one point in time, there was a police officer early on in the trial who uh, testified that he came to the house. And when he was asked to describe what Stephen was wearing, he said he was wearing a plaid type, multicolored type pant. And that kind of uh, really wasn't what Collins wanted to hear. And the reason I say that is because after the officer testified, he went out into the hallway and I migrated out there with my brother as well. And sure enough, Collins came out and, you know, other people started filtering out. And I remember the police officer asking Mr. Collins, are you all set with me, sir? And Mr. Collins looked at him in a disgusting tone of voice, said, you are dismissed. And you think that's attributed to the fact that Right, that he didn't say black pants. Yeah, because every person said black pants, which for us always just felt like coaching. Right. Or I don't know if that's what they call it, but... Coaching, grooming. It's funny that after every day in trial, we would see the witnesses who were going to testify the next day coming down the stairs with Mr. Collins. Like they so, had their... What do you think they're doing up there? Yeah, they're getting their story situated. Right. And it seems like a small detail, but... It just, I guess, is indication of how this whole operation was running and, and the fact that you can be short, right? He doesn't wear black pants. Then to hear person after person specifically talking about his pant color. It's like such an odd thing to have everybody have the same story. Right. Why were they stuck on the black pants? Like, Why did that matter? Because they wanted to say that the person they saw outside was wearing black pants. It just seems like... Well, it's, you know, with the, with the prosecutor, it's all about, you know, consistency. And we want to make sure everybody's consistent in saying the same things. But we all knew that Stephen didn't have any black pants. And I'll venture to say that even when he was arrested, he wasn't wearing black pants. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day. And my dad said, I want to see the pants he was wearing when he was arrested. I guarantee you they're not black. But obviously, they didn't bring that up in trial. Right. What did he wear? He wore brown or gray or washed out khakis. Yeah, or something like a like that. gray, grayy color. Yeah. Right. And obviously, he's not getting his pictures taken because he's a recluse. So we don't have a ton. But there is one photo I have of him and he is not wearing black pants as an adult. There's pictures of him when he was younger, but as an adult, we have one photo and I look at it all the time and I'm like, that is, that's the color of pants he wore. They're not black. Okay. So one of the last things that we need to discuss is something that was quite shocking to both of us. And actually I had just finished writing my book. So I finished the manuscript. I was out with my sister-in-laws and you know, I was telling them I had finished. They were kind of congratulating me. We were doing a night away. And the next day I get back home and one of my sister-in-laws texts me and she's like, holy crap, I just turned on this podcast that I listened to and they did an episode about your uncle. And my heart just sank. I looked at the title and it felt like, oh, maybe they're actually going to tell the real story based on the title. So I'm like shaking and I go get my dad and I'm like <laughs> trying to compose myself. He's like, well, let's just listen to it. Let's just see what it has to say. And as soon as the podcasters start talking, they say that they're going to interview Detective Mercer, the former lead detective. So I'm thinking like, oh, shoot, what is he going to have to say? And the amount of times that we like looked at each other and just total disbelief and shock you know, it was pretty incredible. We had to listen to it a couple of times just to process what was going on. And the reason for that is because he said so many things that were not true. And we counted them. We wrote them down. It was 24 items that Detective Mercer had said in the podcast that were either incorrect or personal opinion that he was stating as fact. And that was really concerning because it was like there was there's not that much out there 
in terms of Stephen's case and what is out there is obviously pretty biased. And then it just felt like another thing that's going to be out there for people to look up and see, and it's going to be totally incorrect information. That was one thing that was concerning. The other thing was just the way he was speaking about everything was like, oh, in all these years, nothing has changed. He's treating this case exactly like he did all those years ago. Like he knows the truth, even though what he's saying is made up. It's not true. So then I decided that's when I went on to the other podcast and did an interview on killer stories to try and start getting the truth out there in the hopes that like my book would be published and people would see it. And then obviously here we are on this podcast. So I thought it would be interesting to sort of break down some of those things. It's a well-known podcast and I'm sure some of you might even listen to it. And I'm not saying that it's the podcaster's fault, like that they did anything wrong. They probably thought they were scoring big, getting the former lead detective. He must have some good information, but that's just not what, what he gave them. And so there were several things, you know, some of them a little bit smaller, like they kept saying that his alter ego was Kyle Stewart and not Kyle Sterling. So I like to joke because they said in one of their parting words was that they were sure that Kyle Stewart did this crime. And we laugh and like, yeah, sure. Maybe Kyle Stewart did since he doesn't exist in this case. Go see if you can find him. So there were some things like that, but also being serious about it. I mean, they used Kyle Sterling against him. All of his interrogations, everything he said, it's a pretty big part of the case. And to not even have that right, that's a little bit frustrating. But some of the things he said were just ridiculous. One thing he said was that... Well, like you said, without mentioning the podcast name, you would think that they would do some research to make sure they're getting the story at least partly right. Right. So one of the things they said... The detectives and the host, they said that Kristen wasn't raped, but was sexually abused. And, you know, those are important details for them to say that because it is such a mistruth. In the trial, they testified the forensic scientists over and over that there was no sign of any sexual abuse. Her pants were off, but that was as far as that went. They didn't find anything else. So that does change the case. And it starts to make people think different storylines and plot lines. So when you give misinformation like that, it totally changes the picture. Another one, they said that Stephen was given a mistrial because of the tape, the Anton Shalinsky tape was being brought to light. And we might have even laughed at that because we're like, yeah, we wish that's what our lawyer asked for several times. That's not why he was given a mistrial. He was given a mistrial because it was a hung jury. That's a big difference. Yeah. And little things like they said that Stephen was forgotten about by his probation officers in the 1980s, which you know not to be true because, well... We just told you that they came to the house, surrounded him and arrested him. He was given a summons to appear in court. The judge dropped the probation. The judge dropped their probation because my father wrote a letter to the judge and explained the entire situation. The judge was even probably shocked and said, I'm dropping the probation. They didn't just forget about Stephen. That just doesn't happen. The judge was the one who actually dropped the probation. Yeah, but it's like so... Anytime, whether it was at the time of the trial or even now on this podcast, it's like the detective is giving like little bits of information that are correct, but then totally skewing them always to make Stephen look bad. So the detective said on the podcast that Stephen displayed erratic behavior and would run around talking to himself and that this was reported by neighbors. And I think we actually had a good chuckle at that one, because if you actually read the transcripts, it's the exact opposite. It's the neighbors, some of them testifying, they didn't even know Stephen lived there because that's how quiet it was. Or they were saying, oh, I remember him from grade school, but I haven't ever seen him since because he was a recluse and he was so quiet. But then he's just going on this podcast saying outrageous things about Stephen and totally damaging his character. So there was two things that the detective said on the podcast having to do with the night of the crime. One thing was that he said when Kristen's mother came home, she thought that her kids were sleeping. And so she didn't want to disturb them. She assumed they were home and she went to bed. That's actually the exact opposite of what she testified to. She said that she knew that they were not home because she checked their rooms and that she that's where she saw the notes, that one that Kristen had left about her friend coming. She knew that her kids were not home. So that was incorrect information as well. But then in that same breath, he was saying that Kristen's father and the detectives always thought that this placement of the towels on their stairs was odd, that it seemed suspicious. And he spent a good deal of time talking about this towel and how it was, in his opinion, Stephen was already in the house. And that's why this towel on the stairs was suspicious. Although in testimony, 
Kristen's mother said nothing was disrupted. There's nothing in the house that seemed out of the ordinary. So whether there was a towel or not, I don't know. But at the time, nobody brought that up as being suspicious. The sloppy work by Mercer is consistent with the sloppy work during the trial or doing both trials. So one of the most damaging things that the detective said on the podcast is that Kristen's friend said that Steven snuck into the house and stalked Kristen, that he snuck into her room all the time. And that's outrageous because it's simply not true. And the fact that he could go on this podcast with millions of listeners and just say whatever he wanted, and they just accepted it as truth and put it out there, there was nothing to ever indicate that Steven ever went anywhere near that house, besides the fact that they're neighbors, so they live next to each other. That's just his own opinion from we don't even know what, why he would think that. Obviously, they searched the house. There's no indication of Stephen. If there was, they would have clearly used it against him. Well, there was never a fingerprint found in the house, on the doors, anywhere. So to say something so outrageous. It just shows what they're like, how they run their investigations. They, it's almost like they just think a thought and then they make it fact. Right, right. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so another thing that he said on the podcast, this is Detective Mercer. I guess let me back up. Because he said so many things that were not true or things that were half-truths and things that were personal opinion, he said things we weren't privy to that it's like we don't want to take it as complete truth because he was obviously not being thoughtful in what he was saying. But they do raise a lot of concern and suspicion. And one of those things is he said that James Marr, and if you've listened to the aggressor episode, that's who that episode is about, that James Marr and Kristen dated and that when they spoke to James, he was infatuated with her. Now that paints a completely different picture of the story and the crime because they tried in the trial to say, yeah, he threatened her, but that was months before they haven't had any interaction. But to say now that they dated and he was infatuated with her and he threatened to rape and kill her and his photos ripped up in her garbage, that paints a completely different picture. Because we never got an answer, one, to why his photos ripped up in her garbage. But it does make more sense to say that his photos ripped up because they had some sort of relationship as opposed to this photos ripped up in her garbage because he dated one of her friends. I feel like there might be something more to the relationship between James and Kristen based on what he said, whether or not they were dating. I guess we don't know. But the fact that he said that, it was almost like he was letting little bits slide that he forgot were hidden all those years ago is right. what it felt like. And he, he might've been letting stuff slip that he didn't realize was not covered in the trial. Like there might've been a little more to the relationship than we know. I mean, that's probably why she opened her door that particular night. She If she was deathly afraid of Stephen, she would never have opened the door. Or met him outside. Yeah, I mean, we still don't know. Did she open the door for someone or was she meeting someone outside? If she was, like we've already covered and there's absolutely no way that that would have been Steven. Everybody's made that clear on both sides. But if she was meeting a boyfriend or someone, you know, totally changes what happened that night. So we don't know if James Marr and Kristen were dating or what their relationship was actually like. But he did let that slide and it just raises more suspicion about the lack of investigation into James to begin with. And maybe what the detectives actually uncovered when they were talking to him, because they were pretty evasive in their responses as to why he was ruled out as a suspect. So another thing that he said that we don't actually have proof of, but is, I think, really important that they should have investigated further was the fact that there were reports that Kristen's brother was either doing drugs or selling drugs. And that Kristen herself had written in a diary that she was experimenting with drugs. And in the podcast, Detective Mercer said that they went into the house and they actually found cocaine, which they assumed Eugene, her brother, was selling. And so they asked him if anybody he knew related to the drugs could have done this to Kristen. And he said no. So they just dropped it. I mean, there's a whole host of potential suspects when you get into drugs, dealing drugs, money, owing money, all these things. It's like... How could they just drop that? Right. And Stephen at one point said that he'd seen something on their door from the distance, some kind of a threatening note to Eugene about drugs and owing money. And nobody believed him. I'm one of the ones that didn't believe him. But now that Mercer let slip out that there was a diary and that this stuff was mentioned in the diary, again, now this sheds a whole different light on everything. And again... In that diary, don't you put your most uh, deepest thoughts in there? Don't you think there would have been something in that diary about her fear of Stephen? 
something, there would have been something in there about how she was supposedly, quote, deathly afraid of Stephen. And if it was, we'd have known about the diary. Yeah, the diary is not mentioned in trial. So Detective Mercer mentions it in the podcast. He talks about it as if he says that it was typical girl stuff. Some of it was true. Some of it wasn't. And we're always like, how do you determine the truth of someone's diary, especially someone who's no longer with us? How do you say something's true and something's not true? Yeah. And was it, okay, that's not true because it doesn't help our case. You know, I don't trust how they're filtering truth anyway, but I'd like to know what it, what it was. Cause like, as my dad was saying, if there was anything about Steven in the diary, it would have been brought up in trial. So there's two scenarios here. Either there's nothing about Steven in the diary at all. Or maybe there was something about Stephen in the diary, but the things about other people were much more condemning and they didn't want that information to come out. So they just decided, let's just scrap it all together. Right. I want to know all of it. I want to know what's in the diary. Uh, it did seem like as he was talking about it in the podcast, he was sort of keeping some of those things maybe under wraps. But he does say in there that she was experimenting with the drugs. We've got her brother selling drugs, but there's no arrest. They find the drugs in his house. There's no... The way he was talking about it in the podcast was so aloof. It was like, oh, yeah, he was selling drugs out of his house. And we asked him and he said, nah, no one buying drugs for me could have killed Kristen. So we just dropped it. I mean, that's just that's a poor investigation. Emblematic of the entire trial. So the detective also says on the podcast that the neighbors came out after the arrest of Stephen and they were grateful to be, quote, liberated from the disease. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, going back just a few minutes ago, we said that the neighbors didn't even realize Stephen lived there. Right. That doesn't make much sense. Again, it's just the detective telling the story that he'd like it to be. Right which is how they presented it during the trial. This is a story we want to tell you. This may not be exactly what happened, but listen to our story. Right. And and I'm sure there were people in the neighborhood, like obviously the Scarabellis, want, they want justice for their daughter. So if they think Stephen did it and the detectives are telling them Stephen did it, they're going to be grateful that they catch him. I get that. But to say that the rest of the neighborhood's out celebrating and that, that they thought he was a disease and all this stuff is just not really accurate because they're also leaving out the fact that there's people in the neighborhood that are good family friends of ours, even friends to this day. And their perspective is going to be a lot different and what they think about Stephen and being guilty or not guilty. But again, that's a side of the story the detective's never going to tell. So those were some of the things that we had heard in the podcast that we thought were outrageous and figured we'd take the opportunity to discuss and I guess dispute, especially because we're talking from the perspective of reading the actual trial transcripts. And unfortunately, Detective Mercer did not refresh on what he had said in trial and contradicted himself quite a bit on that podcast. So we figured that it'd be a good time to sort of wrap that up and kind of cross that off our list of fights that we wanted to fight. So is there anything in the case that you or the story you feel like you haven't really had a chance to speak to that might not fit in the way that I've put out the questions or the way that I drafted the po podcast that you feel like you need to let the people know about? I think some of the bias of the judge and in all the uh, times that uh, Mr. Soshnik asked for a legitimate mistrial, how he basically would say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. that. You're asking me to do the most serious thing I can do. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's just shows a weakness as far as I'm concerned on his part. Especially because he doesn't want to take a serious action, but the only reason the mistrials are being asked for is because someone else committed a serious action. Right. He would say things like Mr. Soshnik would ask for a mistrial. At one point, he asked for a special prosecutor because of what Collins had done. And the judge's answer was, uh, he wasn't prepared to do it at this point. I'm far from that. He says, uh, let these matters go to the grievance committee after the trial is over. And I'm wondering, how is that going to help Stephen at this point in time? Yeah, because one, then you got to go to the grievance committee, which you didn't, it didn't work. But then also you still have to get Stephen exonerated. Right. And then I would learn later how dysfunctional the grievance committee really was. They're never really interested in getting to the truth. Another time, the judge said, made a comment when we were speaking about Mr. Collins lying to him about what he said about the note. The judge says, I'm not going to, I didn't want to get involved and fall for someone's allegations that they lied. You shouldn't do that to Judge Mullen, speaking of himself in the third person. 
You don't call other people liars, okay? That's for a fact finder to decide, he said. Whether someone didn't tell the truth or not, that's disconcerting to me. So I'm left to ask, how can you say that on one hand and then ask and then refuse to call for a fact finder on the other hand? Yeah. How are you supposed to arrive at the truth? At what point is a judge compelled to act? Yeah, it's like he had a lot of opportunities in this case to make big decisions that would have altered Stephen's fate. And he just didn't want to do it. He didn't want to make those decisions. And then he said about the threat, the judge said something to the effect of the only reason that he's not testifying is because he's intimidated about something Mr. Collins said. And so that it's a non-issue as far as I'm concerned. It's a non-issue. Is this not kind of blatant and shameful conduct on the part of the judge with a total disregard for me? Yeah. It's a non-issue to have my prosecutors threatening <laughs> people so that they don't testify. This is the kind of stuff that went on the, during the whole trial. In fact, at one point, I walked in the court early, and the judge was talking to a bunch of students, looked like maybe 30 kids of high school age, and he had the news day opened, and he said something to the effect of, yeah, I think he's guilty, too. And then he saw me. Okay, that's a wrap. Let's wrap it all up. So this is the kind of stuff that went on. Yeah, it does seem like it's uh, like one of those twisty, turny movies that you think only happens in the imaginings of directors. But they obviously are pulling probably a lot of their stories from bits of the truth from right. these cases. I mean, our case isn't unique. It feels like it to us, but within <laughs> Suffolk County alone, I'm sure people have similar stories that feel just as frustrating as this. If Collins did that to me, knowing I worked and spearheaded an entire internal affairs division, can you imagine the other people that have been threatened? And what does he rely on? Is he always going to say that I rely on my unblemished record in all of his defense when any, some, whenever someone accuses of some, him of something? So if he did it to me, how many other people has he done it to? And today the guy's a judge. My older brother John once told me that Certain people's lives are already plotted out. You knew that Collins was going to become a district attorney, an assistant DA. Then he was going to move into a judgeship. And anything that got in the way of that is squashed. And he's not the only one. There are many people like that. Lots, majority of the police officers are good. Probably the attorneys as well. But there are definitely some bad apples in there. And they should be held accountable. So I guess while I have you here and we're talking about uh, good and bad police officers, because obviously we're categorizing you on the good side, were you ever em embarrassed might not be the right word, but I mean, working in law enforcement and having a brother who's a convicted felon in the same state, I mean, were you ever worried that people would say something to you or no? Because I talked a little bit about how I was a little bit, I don't know, I guess I had some shame and I didn't really want people to know, or like I had a social studies teacher from Long Island and I thought, you know, he's going to know about Stephen. He's going to know he's my uncle. And I kind of just wanted to keep it hidden. Well, as this was going on through the years, I did confide in several people and kind of kept them abreast of what was going on, even people at work. And they were interested in, you know, hearing what was going on. But for the most part, it really just never came up. I did have to check with my uh, boss to make sure because we did have a policy on uh, socialization. And that includes socialization with inmates. And I had to let my boss know that I was going to visit my brother who was in prison. And that was really the only uh, stipulation that they're notified that uh, you are going to prison, basically visit somebody. Yeah. Like on a personal note, though, not for work or anything. Right. Yeah. So I did let him know that. I haven't, I don't think, said this in the podcast or maybe even in my book, but Stephen doesn't actually know that I've done any of this, that I wrote about it, that I'm putting this information out into the world. What do you think he would think? I think uh, anything that uh, we could do on the outside to help him, exonerate him, I think he'd appreciate it. I mean... True, he may not like to hear that he has an illness, but if it helps him in the end, that's a good thing. I think we've covered a lot in this episode. Hopefully I can put this together in a way that, that makes some sense. So I appreciate my dad coming in and, and sharing his perspective on some of this stuff. And like I said, I've 
picked his brain throughout this process a ton. So even in parts where I'm sharing details, a lot of that's also coming from my dad too. At the end of the last episode, mistrial to conviction, I asked you, the listener, to put yourself in the position of a juror and to go back through this case, think about all the details, and to answer the simple question of whether or not there's reasonable doubt in the case. And since this is probably going to be my last episode for this season covering my uncle's story, I'm just going to ask you to do that again, to go back and think about everything that we've discussed from episode one, who was Steven, all the way up into this point, hearing a little bit more from my dad, specifically the prosecutorial misconduct, and maybe help us pass this along, get this word out there. If you truly believe like we do that there wasn't enough to convict Steven, then share the message, share the podcast, and then maybe we can reach our ultimate goal, which is exoneration for Steven. But I don't think that we're going to be able to do that without all of your help. So if you liked the story, you liked the podcast, and you'd like to help us reach that really important and life-altering goal, then like I said, share this podcast around with some people and maybe we'll do a second season another case. I really don't know what the future of Innocence Advocate is, but it was just important for me to start here to share Stephen's story. And I've appreciated the feedback I've gotten so far and the people who have reached out in frustration. I had one person tell me that they wanted to know how I was going to get to the end result when I was already so many episodes in. And I just told them, you're not going to get an end result. They kind of wanted a resolution. And unfortunately, we, we don't really have that. Some people might consider Stephen's conviction the resolution, but that's that's not the end of the story for Stephen, and that's not the end of the story for us. And we'll just keep fighting for his exoneration and, and hopefully find the person who can help us to pick up this case and and do something about it. And so we will look forward to that day when Stephen's walking out of prison free man. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, and no matter what happens, you know, I ask you to keep up the good fight. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.